What's the game-changing realization that helped you build a high-performing team? That question is at the center of every episode of the HR Impact Show. Every HR professional wants to build a team that has empowered managers, engaged employees, and an organization that's striving to become elite. The challenge is that you're often told to do more with less. We're gonna fix that. Every week, we will feature executive and senior HR leaders from across the country, and they will share with us their actionable insights and best practices that can help empower you to create an engaged elite workforce. Here's the show. Thanks for joining us today on the HR Impact Show. This is your friendly neighborhood talent strategy nerd, Dr. Jim. The cardinal sin of any talent strategy transformation is thinking that all of your problems are rooted in talent attraction and recruitment. What are the things that people leaders need to do to avoid falling into that trap? That's the question that Cynthia Hiskis, Chief People Officer at TEND, is going to help us answer today. So let me give you a little background on Cynthia. She brings over 30 years of experience in multi-site Fortune 500 and growth organizations in the CPG, technology, and healthcare sectors. She's had a couple of instances where she's actually shepherded organizations into IPO status, one in e-com, another one in healthcare. So that's a pretty interesting uh, teaser into the conversation that we're going to have. She began her career in the manufacturing operations space. So you're looking at somebody who's got a tremendously diverse set of experiences that she brings to the table. At TEND, she leads the people function, which includes connecting the dots between talent acquisition, people operations, and learning to business opportunities in order to create and maximize value for the enterprise. And if that wasn't enough, she's also a certified leadership coach. Cynthia Hiskus, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's nice to spend some time with y'all today. I'm looking forward to this conversation, and especially since you're a former Chicagoan like myself, we might have some interesting conversations to have along those lines as well. But I think one of the things that I want to begin this conversation with is filling in some of the blanks about your background that's going to add context to the conversation that we're going to have. So fill the listeners in on some of the things that you feel are important that I left out. You said I started in manufacturing, but ahead of that, I think what is, has been really helpful for me is I actually have a degree in engineering. I have a nice analytical background and that skill set has really helped me navigate the HR world, which tends to be at least stereotypically more soft skills. So it's allowed me to be able to take some of those more conceptual um, themes, initiatives, and root cause problem solve, break those down into more actionable steps that we can measure and move forward with. So that's been a real pretty significant piece of my background. Um, and then spent quite a bit of time in manufacturing. And those skills, though, helped me pivot to the other industries that you mentioned e-commerce and healthcare, what that has really told me or showed me is there are some fundamentals that will transcend whatever industry that you're in. And I think HR is one of those functions that does that. If you have the right kind of approach, keep your mind open and think about how you reapply your learnings to your current space. That's interesting that your background was originally in engineering and then you made the transition into the HR space. I guess one of the things that I'm curious about and especially when you apply your leadership lens, how do you advise people to not over-index one way or another on the soft skills or on the analytical skills when it comes to people leadership and development? Probably the learning from an engineering background is the root cause problem solving. And that's probably one of the best things that I think you approaches. And I use this in leadership coaching as well. 
things that you can ask yourself when you're interacting with someone, just as if you're approaching a math problem is, what's the presenting problem? What am I trying to solve? And then ask a number of questions to get down to the root cause of the reason why. So usually with people-related interactions, especially if they're emotionally charged, the first thing that comes out of someone's mouth is not going to be what the root cause is. It's what's bothering them right then. So usually it is slowing things down, asking a bunch of questions to understand what the problem is, where they're coming from, what does help look like? Because sometimes it's actually not help, it's just listening. And then if it is help, understanding if someone has the skills to do what it is they need to do in order to address the problem. So it's actually getting pretty analytical about the people interaction. And and that's the piece that transfers over from the engineering education. Oftentimes, if you're a first-time manager, the instinct is to go ahead and rush in and try to help. So if you give yourself pause and you're asking yourself, what should I do in this moment? Asking the question, what's the problem you're trying to solve? And what does help look like is going to be really powerful in helping you get out of the trap of rushing in to play hero. Because what you want to do is make sure your people are playing the role of hero, not you, if you want to build a great team. When you think about, you're relatively new at 10, so you you might want to apply this to your time at Oak Street as well. When you think about the accomplishment or accomplishments that you're most proud of, what stands out in in your most recent roles? I will go back to Oak Street with this one because it took some time to develop, and that was developing a talent analytics function within the HR function at Oak Street. A talent analytics function is actually fairly new, especially in a smaller organization. And to be able to influence the the leadership and the team to um, embrace what that what value that kind of team can provide, I think um, that was an accomplishment. But then to actually be able to see that value translate into results, starting from doing the analytics on uh, the recruitment, why people come, why people leave, and on turnover is, of course, the why people leave, and then starting to triangulate that and compare it to our engagement results. So engagement, turnover, and recruitment looking at those three data points in aggregate to be able to help understand and predict where you're going to see maybe future attrition is really helpful. You hit the retention and turnover nerd nerve of mine. So I'm going to sit on this and just pull the thread a little bit. So when you're looking at the relationship among talent attraction, why people join, why people leave, and also on retention, Mm -hmm. and you applied employee engagement to it, what were the major relationships that showed up that pointed to some of the common reasons why people are exiting an organization. But your engagement results are a predictor of your turnover results. So if you can start looking at those results and seeing where you have hotspots, and that's where we focus time on retention plans within specific teams or specific functions. And so then you go look at the specific engagement survey results for that particular area, both the free comments and the, the survey results to better understand what's actually happening there. I think a lot of times what happens with a lot of problem solving is we try to do broad brush problem solving. And then what happens is we really aren't solving anybody's problem. We're scratching a little bit at everybody's, but not really solving anyone's. So we actually have to do some of the harder work, get more detailed, get more granular, and then apply specific actions to specific problems versus that broad brush approach. Doing the engagement survey, seeing where engagement maybe is going down or waning, allows you to dig into that specific area and be more focused on your approach versus just looking at it organizationally. You just started at 10 not too long ago. 
I'm sure you have a long list of things that are on your radar as far as what you want to get done. But if you think about your biggest moonshot, what is the yeah. biggest moonshot accomplishment that you want to check off the box a year from now? This may not feel like a moonshot to anyone else, but if you understand the, the dental, especially the hy hygiene, hygienist space, my biggest moonshot is to um, have no openings for dental hygienists in any of our studios. And the reason being is because that is one of our big limiters to growth and profitability. So I never want to be the person who is holding us back from any kind of growth or profitability. So I want to make sure we have that in place. But it also is going to mean that we're, we've set ourselves apart in a very competitive environment and, and set ourselves apart by identifying who we are, what our employment brand is, and really understanding those hygienists and their demographics so that we can create the right product market fit for them so they want to be with us, which is actually the longer term learning that we can then take and reapply to other cohorts as well. I don't know the space really well, yeah. so this question might be completely irrelevant, but you're, you're talking about two healthcare spaces. So Tenda's in healthcare dentistry, and then you were at Oak Street, yeah. you were there through the pandemic. Are there any lessons that you learned navigating through the pandemic that you're applying at Tend? which will help solve the dental hygienist shortage problem that you're trying to solve. The challenge there, of course, I think it's more thematic and less specific. One of the challenges that we saw during the pandemic at Oak Street was customer service roles, not a very highly paid role. Um, and we were, and we had a lot of customer service reps and we were requiring people to come in to the office in order to do their job. We had a really hard time finding the number of people that we needed to do that and um, challenge the operation. What if we let people work at home, work from home and monitor their progress and their performance through really easy ways in customer service? So we made that shift and we were able to fill our spots. What we did is we understood what the pain point was for those individuals and we adjusted our approach and our process to be able to address that pain point. And then we were then we were able to fill our spots. Similar process here at Tend. We've taken quite a bit of time to understand the wants, needs, and demographics of our hygienists, both our candidates and our current hygienists, so that we can start to break those out into what we have called them as personas. So different personas, and then address the specific pain points of each of those personas, so that we're offering a product, so to say, an employment opportunity that meets the needs of these individuals. The broad lesson in both of those examples that you gave, it's a pretty interesting contrast between what you've done at Oak Street and what you're doing at Tend to some of the things that you see in big tech where you have these universal mandates of everybody's back in the office and if you're not, there's gonna be problems and whatnot. So taking that people-centered approach, yeah. this is actually a really great example of how your policy or your process going forward should be informed by what's happening at the desk level versus whatever you decide is convenient for your own personal biases or likes, dislikes, whatnot, given that you're a leadership coach too. When you think about all of the leadership or HR myths that are out there, what's the one that you wish would just go away? That everything is a people problem. But more specifically, I, I think that everything is a, a talent attraction or a recruiting problem. And that's just part of it. And it's our lack of an ability or interest in more holistically solving the whole employee life cycle and engagement. Not 
problem, but challenge and journey. Because I think if you can get really clear on who you are as a company, represent that through your employee brand, and then make sure that your internal systems and processes and policies, as we were just talking about, are consistent and provide that are are consistent with who you say you are, that will not only attract, but then retain people. And I think that is where we need to focus. So many times I've come into an organization and they're like, we really have a recruiting problem. And, and then you get there and you find out we really don't have a recruiting problem. We really have a retention problem. And then that's causing this, causing the recruiting flywheel. And those things are all connected. And I think that's one of the, that the one of the key values in, in analytics that you can start to apply is you get smarter. And so your attraction process can get better. And then therefore your retention is um, positively impacted as well. Wow, it's been a great conversation so far. Make sure you join the HR Impact community where we gather a community of HR leaders just like you. This is a space where top people leaders share actionable insights and practical playbooks. Sign up today as a member for the community. Get updates on the latest HR resources and exclusive event invites. You can join the community at www.engagerocket.co slash HR Impact. And now back to the show. We're taking the HR Impact show on the road. As a loyal listener to the HR Impact Show, we'd like to invite you to join us live at the 2024 Transform Conference at the Wynn Resort in Las Vegas from March 11th through the 13th. Transform brings together people-driven leaders, investors, and innovators across industries and backgrounds with a shared passion for people innovation and transforming the world of work. The 2024 Transform Conference is going to be the best yet. Here's what you can expect. Innovative showcases, probing conversations, hands-on learning experiences, 300-plus speakers, and more. Join us and let's shape the future world of work together. There's an aspect of what you said that's really interesting to me, and I'd like you to expand on it a little bit. And I mentioned it at the opening of the show, too, is that sometimes everything can appear to be a talent or recruitment problem. Why is it so easy for some executives or a lot of executives to fall into that sort of thinking? Why aren't they looking at other elements that are equally, if not more relevant when you're looking at the employee life cycle? Maybe it's because people are bringing forth the data in a way that helps them understand where the problem is. I think that's one thing. The other is sometimes the the cross-functional muscle is overpowered on the non-HR side of things. So what I mean by that is I think cross-functional partnership, not just collaboration, but really partnership on solving some of these problems is, or some of these challenges is really the opportunity that companies, especially they are growing and scaling face. So what I mean by that, we say it's a recruiting problem. I'm not, you're not giving me any great candidates. And then you dig into it and you find out why not? This goes back to what cause problem solving. Well, why am I not? What is it that you're not getting from them? And then you find out that actually you don't really even have alignment on the job profile. Or you find out that a hiring manager, this hiring manager for the same role is thinking different things, has different requirements than the same hiring, a different hiring manager for the same role. So you have like this lack of consistency. And then I think what happens is it all gets pushed back to recruiting when really you have to build some of these cross-functional processes and communication that helps you partner to that achievement. And that's some of what we're, we've been able to push through and drive, but it's not easy. If I'm looking at the other side of the table and wondering why is it so easy to look at everything through the lens of a talent attraction problem or a recruitment issue, 
when you look at the broader research and data that exists in terms of why people exit, your biggest indicators sit on your onboarding process. So who owns onboarding? It's usually your line level managers. And then the second reason why people leave are usually manager related, but more specifically, there's no development path. So somebody will be in an organization for a period of time and they'll be performing as far as they can tell and as far as what they've been told, but they never hear, have that conversation about what's next for me. So they get disengaged and leave. So that again is a problem that sits at the feet of whoever the line manager is. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't want to be accountable for that. So it's just easier to push it off to a different function. And that's where I think onboarding and ongoing training and development are huge cross-functional relationships that need to be built in order to be effective. And yes, I've seen it go back and forth. Who owns this? But the people think, so HR owns it, but their specific skills, so the business owns it. And then I think that's where it can work either way. You just have to be really clear about who's owning it or how you're owning it together so that you can de deliver the end result. And that's really where you go back to some of those re-engagement survey and your retention and exit survey data to help you understand. So when we take account of this little bit of conversation that we just had, how does that tie into some of the realizations that you had that changed the game in terms of how you build high-performing teams? I think that probably is kind of points to my approach, the things that I look at and spend time on and prioritize within an organization. So coming into 10, we had been doing engagement surveys, um, but we hadn't been sharing the results and certainly weren't building action plans and sharing with the teams what we're doing about these. And part of the reason people do, don't do that is it's not a whole lot of fun. <laughs> if you've ever read an engagement survey result before, you feel like crap when you're done reading it because no one's happy. And then you don't feel like anything that you're going to do is going to be helpful. But that really helps, I think, inform where the themes are. And then you just start chipping away at those and don't take on too many. Really limit the, the priority or the action areas that you have to three themes that you can do something with and keep working on them and letting people know what you're doing on a regular cadence. So it's transparent. It starts to be reliable. And what you're ultimately doing is building trust because you're not going to be able to fix everything. And people actually know that. But what they really appreciate is that you're listening to them and that you're trying and that you're making some kind of progress. And I think that is the kind of relationship that you want to have built in an organization because that'll flow into things beyond just that particular topic. That's how you want people to walk around and live their day-to-day uh, -day work life. What you just mentioned struck me as being a pretty methodical process. You need to <laughs> take a look at what the data is telling you. You need to identify the key priorities and then you need to chip away at one, two or three things that, that will make progress. How is that what you described? Yeah. Not working across purposes of being agile when you're looking to make progress. So tie those two things together. How can you be methodical and still maintain pace and progress? What are the principles that help you do that? Being methodical is what allows you to maintain pace and progress. It is the methodical piece is the analysis and the planning, and then it's execution. If you just focus on execution, if you're just focusing on the doing, the doing, you never, then that's when you really, I think that's when you're on the hamster wheel because you're really not, you're really not knocking anything down. You're just continuing to spin plates. I think it allows you to, you get clear on your priorities. So then if I know these are the three, three things that I'm working against, when distractions come or things come to compete with those, it's very easy. It's, it's much easier for me to decide yes or no, or to understand the impact of changing the path. 
And it may mean that you're going to change it, but it'll, you can change it faster if you're clear on what the impact is going to be of that change. I think it's being clear on not only what you're doing, but why you're doing it. And then that can help you a pivot when you maybe need to pivot or the opportunity comes to pivot is you say, was this more important than what I decided to do? Or is it at cross purpose? Well, I, I like how you tied that together because whenever you're in a training environment or at least working on any sort of initiative that you want to go from point A to point B, one of the key steps is identify what are the fundamental pieces that help you move towards that desired end state. And you okay. focus on excellence on those fundamental pieces. So it's okay. slow down to speed up by having focus on those basics because that's what's going to get you most of the way there. The other part that I like about what you said is that when the situation changes or you have new priorities that come up, it ties back to what we were talking about earlier, asking the question, what's the problem that you're trying to solve? Because sure. if you have that clear and you've communicated that across the organization and you've been transparent about what the move forward is, you should always be able to root back to the core thing that you're trying to solve until that has been solved and then you have the space to move to something else. So really good stuff. I really like what we've covered up until this point. Uh, we've built a, a good framework for how we actually execute the things that we're talking about. If someone out there is listening and wants to get started on this, and you've done this several times, uh, and you've actually guided two organizations to IPO status doing a lot of this stuff, what are the things that a quote unquote newbie that's trying to execute this needs to watch out for that's going to trip them up? Analysis paralysis is probably one of them. Although I focus on know your results and um, understand data and use data to help you problem solve, you can't hide behind it and don't let it in and of itself slow you down. It should be an enabler, not an inhibitor. So I think that's really important to understand. So that's one. The other I would say is allow yourself quick wins, even though some of these things you have to dive deep into and do your, your feasibility matrix assessment or whatever tool that you like to use is what's the how hard is this thing for me to do and what's the impact that it's going to have? And man, take the stuff that's easy and quick and make sure that you don't forget those. I think those two things are really important. And lastly, I would say alignment. Oh yeah, we talked a little bit earlier about silos and busting silos. It's really important that you aren't building in this great high-performance team in a bubble. You need to build alignment with your key stakeholders in the organization, help them understand what you're doing, help them understand the data, share information with them, ask them for input, and then make sure that you're circling back and keeping, keeping them up to speed on the progress that you're making and really bringing them along. They need to be brought along in the process. There's a couple of things that you mentioned that I think are worth expanding on. And you have to avoid uh, analysis paralysis and you have to look for quick wins and you can't be siloed. So those are three things. So if you're looking at doing that at the enterprise level, what should you be relying on to, to determine the first thing that you make take action on? Each function is going to have a different set of priorities. All your data is going to show different things. So how do you prioritize what's the most important thing that you should be focused on to get that quick win? Sometimes you have to not do the most important thing in order to get the quick win, because sometimes the most important thing is getting the quick win. But, but that's fine, which is good, but that's a strategy and that's important to have. It helps you build like relationship and credibility. What I think is really important is understanding the business model and the economics of it. And that's what you use to help you understand what's the most important thing that I could be spending time on. And don't just think about that yourself and go back to your office and do the work. 
talk about that, share that with your executive team, share that with the leaders, build alignment, because that not only it builds your own credibility and understanding of the business and how the people function connects to the ultimate business results, which isn't always obvious to people. And oh, by the way, if it's connecting to delivering the business result, it is probably the most important thing for you to be doing. So that's really good. And it immediately got me to thinking, like, if I want to identify what the weakest idea is, I'll float one as something that I'm thinking about and then ask, why is this a terrible idea? And people are more likely to tell you something is a terrible idea than they're going to be able to tell you something is great. So play into that. Pick something that you think is a, a potential and say, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. Why is this a bad idea? And everybody will volunteer why that idea is crap. And if you don't have too many naysayers, that might tell you that you're onto something. So when you think about everything that we've talked about and you want to crystallize that into a few key principles that the listeners should keep in mind when they're when they start this journey. What are the things that stand out? If you're looking to, which I assume we all are looking to create the most value for the organization through the HR function and the people within, the most important thing that you can do is understand the business and understand how the business, and when I say the business, the financial financial metrics, the overall balance scorecard metrics that you have, understand those and how the people function relates and then where you can best contribute. Maybe what you think is the biggest gap isn't necessarily where you can best contribute to the overall business results. And you need to be sensitive to that because that's ultimately what will build credibility and help you drive in the long term. And then you need to come to the table with data and information to um, share that and pose that to the rest of the stakeholders because it may not be familiar to them. And then you bring them along the journey. So continue to provide Here's what I'm sharing. Here's why I'm sharing it. I'm proposing we do this because this is the impact that it has. And on a regular basis, come back and report out on results. Great stuff. So if folks want to continue the conversation, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Probably on LinkedIn. We appreciate you hanging out with us, Cynthia. When I think about this conversation, there are four questions that stand out to me that every leader should be thinking about when they're faced with a decision point on which way to go forward. Obviously, we covered this early on, but the first one is what's the problem that you're trying to solve? I think that's absolutely critical for anybody that's listening to get in the habit of asking. But then after that, when you're working on your prioritization, why this, why now, why care? If you're asking those four questions, that should point a pretty clear roadmap on what you should be focusing on when you're trying to execute any sort of transformational change. But the other piece to think about is that when you're in the the process of executing a transformation, you're going to have a lot of things on your radar. And I think the biggest thing that comes out of this conversation that stood out to me is instead of trying to boil the ocean and pick all the things that could be wrong, identify the one or two that's going to get you the quickest wins and start there and then build from that. For those of you who have been listening to the conversation, let us know what you thought of it. Leave us a review. Tune in next time where we'll have another leader joining us and telling us their game-changing realizations would help them build a high-performing team. Thanks for listening to this episode of the HR Impact Show. We hope you liked the conversation. Don't forget to continue supporting us by joining the HR Impact community. You can find the community at www.engagerocket.co slash HR Impact. Tune in next time where we'll have another guest who's going to share with us the game-changing insights that help them build high-performing teams.